Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. Guys, how, how many of you here were, were here last week when we started talking about deliverance? All right, that's good. Tonight we're going to continue on with part two. Uh, I thought this would be a two-week series. Guess what? It's a three-week series. Next week we're actually going to talk about how deliverance and healing, physical healing, are connected. And I just want to clarify a whole bunch of things next week. Uh, I feel like we give the devil way too much credit. Um, Come back next week. We're going to talk about deliverance. But man, all day I've been stirred by this this thought, and we'll, we'll get to the, the sermon in a minute. But when you think about heaven, when you think about what's up there, okay, I, I need us to understand that there's more worship in heaven than preaching. And there's more worship in heaven than teaching. And I don't, I don't even remember who told me this, but I think I was a kid. Somebody said the easiest way to get your prayers answered is to pray scripture, because that's what he says. And all we have to do is agree with him. And the answer is always yes. We want to pray what he prays. We want to pray what he says. Do you agree with me? Okay. So what exactly are we believing for when we pray for his kingdom to come? If there's more worship in heaven than preaching. And there's more worship in heaven than teaching. And what exactly are we praying for when we ask for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? I I think it's very encompassing. I think it covers a wide variety of topics, but I think it has to start there. There's more worship in heaven than preaching. What just happened, um, the musical part of worship, is why we came. And I will never, um, I need to be careful. Never is a strong word, but I I really mean this. We're never going to not do that. We're never going to give him less than what he's worthy of. Think about this. How in the world would we consider it partnering with him to limit worship. Whose agenda do you think we partner with when we choose to limit worship? I'm not saying anybody is possessed. I'm not saying anybody is under demonic influence, but I am wondering, I was wondering when I thought of this yesterday, whose agenda does it seem more likely that they would want to limit worship, God or Satan? It spells itself out, right? Like, this isn't that hard. Whose kingdom benefits from limiting worship? Everybody knows the right answer. And yet, how many have said, like, well, that that worship set was a little too long for my liking. On earth as it is in heaven, his will be done. His kingdom come. His kingdom is filled with worship. It's not filled with preaching. It's not filled with teaching. It's not filled with Sunday school. I think that oftentimes God will show up in the most subtle ways. God loves subtlety. I'm not saying he doesn't do things that aren't subtle. He does lots of things that aren't subtle, but he loves subtlety. And I think that so many times he will give us, he will allow us to see just a glimpse of his eyes, just a glimpse. And what he does with that quick glimpse is he's will, he wants to see who's willing to turn aside from a glimpse. He wants to see who's, who he can trust with a glimpse. God will trust us with what we prove that we'll protect. And God will trust us up to the extent of our turning aside. Moses didn't have to turn aside. But when he turned aside, God began to, you guys know the whole story of Moses. Like, that's when God encountered him. It was after Moses turned aside. Moses, in other words, had the option of keep going, to keep going. And I keep coming back to this thought over and over and over. It's the small glimpses. It's the small glimpses. I'm telling you, it's the small glimpses. Everybody pays attention when there's, you know, with Noah, that there's a flood, (laughs) Everyone pays attention when there's a great shaking. Everyone pays attention when there's a great symbol sounding. But who pays attention to the glimpses? 
who will turn aside? And I, I know he's looking for that. And I've had to repent for thinking that I need a big glimpse, that I need a big cracking of thunder, and I need to hear the angels singing. And he loves that. He does that stuff too. But I don't have to require that in order to turn aside. And too many times I've, I've almost said like, well, I don't know if that was really him. I just caught a glimpse. And what I've found is that people who don't respond Let me rephrase that. When people don't respond to him, he moves on to find people who will respond to him, even if it's just a glimpse. And he lingers and he waits for those who will linger and wait for him. You guys know this if you've been at reunion for any length of time, that this this is the least important part of the service. This is the least important part of what we do because response is everything to him. Response is everything. And he looks for people that when he shows up, everything else stops. And you know what? Yeah, we have an agenda and we have an order of service and we have things that we want to do. But how many of you know when he's not done, why why would we stop that worship set? Why would we stop singing that song? If he's not finished, we have to keep going. That's not an option to us. I think that he often puts us, puts us to the test to see if everything does stop. And when I say everything, I mean everything. He's only interested in purity. He's never interested in mixture. He's only interested in purity of heart. He's only interested in purity of worship. And so again, I, I know this church, I know this family, and I know your answer to this, but these are good questions to ask ourselves. Is it him who we really want? Is it him who we really want? Even if he comes in a way that's new to us, or even if he comes in a way that makes us uncomfortable. What if he comes in a way that we aren't used to? Do we still want him then? Or do we just want the familiar parts to him? Do we just want the comfortable parts to him? Do we just want the safe parts of him? Do we just want the understandable parts of him? And do we just want the inoffensive parts to him? Because listen, uh, if, if you know anything about Jesus, there wasn't much he did that wasn't offensive. Even the way he was born offended people. The way he died offended people. The way he rose again offended people. That's for free. So we're going to continue talking about deliverance tonight. And I didn't get a chance to, to add this in last week. I want to tell you some things that are going to sound demeaning, but they're not. Okay, this is not me talking down to you. But I want to tell you that demons are actually smarter than you. They know more than you, but they're foolish. Okay, many people don't seem to understand the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, They're not the same. Knowledge has to do with information. It's how much, how many things you actually know. But wisdom is actually a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts are simply manifestations of the power and the glory of God. So listen, you can know all the facts in the world and still be foolish. I've met some very intelligent fools. And I want to tell you, demons are smart. They're smarter than you. They're smarter than all of us combined. They know more than you, but they are foolish because they have no access to the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom is a person, and they have no access to him. Never challenge a demon's intelligence because you're going to get embarrassed, but never believe anything they say because they're always liars. Demons are fools and they're liars. They just know a lot of facts. So we never get impressed when we hear like a demon, you know, manifesting and saying all these things. My pastor as a kid used to say, never believe the devil even when he tells the truth, right? Because even when the the devil himself, when Satan was talking to Jesus, he quoted the truth. He quoted scripture. And yet because of his heart, it was all a lie. Doesn't mean scripture was a lie. It meant what he said was a lie. He was twisting things. This is part of why demons fear us. This is why 
demons don't like us is because the truth sets people free. And they can only ensnare us up to the point of truth. And their lies are broken the moment that we embrace truth. Who is truth? Yeah, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. I want to start talking tonight about deliverance in the exact same place that we started last week. I want to drive these scriptures home. The first place I'm going is the Great Commission, which last week, half of the people in this room says, I know the Great Commission. I believe in it. I live that out. That's who I am. Okay. Let's, let's see. Again, here we go. We're going to read Mark 16. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed in me, or he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These are the signs that will accompany those who have believed. In my names they will cast out demons. Pretty high on the list. In fact, it's the first sign. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So one more time, what was the first sign that Jesus said would accompany those fulfilling the Great Commission? Are you sure? Okay. Who said, I can't remember who said this. Somebody really great said this. Well, I mean, yes, that's what Jesus said, but I'm thinking of something that somebody said that you guys are too smart, too smart. Um, I heard somebody say this week, uh, if Jesus meant anything, he meant what he said. Does that make sense? If he meant anything, it's, it's what he said. Believe him at his face value. And I'm telling you right now, in the Great Commission, the first sign that he said that would accompany those who, who do these things would be casting out demons. Again, uh, Luke chapter 9. This is when Jesus sent out the 12. He said, and he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over some of the demons. What is it? All of the demons. All of the demons. And to... Heal. Hmm. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. What was the first thing he gave the 12 authority to do? Cast out demons. And? Heal. Interesting. Again, you guys need to come to Kingdom Living. We talk about the threefold ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 8, it says, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. Mark 1, And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. One-third of Jesus' recorded ministry in Scripture is casting out demons. I said this last week. I want to say this again. I want this to be a recurring thought in this house. If we try to model our life after someone, it's impossible to be mistaken for them if we're not doing the things that they did, right? You won't believe I'm LeBron James if I don't learn how to shoot free throws. And no one's going to confuse me for Jesus if I'm not casting out and healing. I need you guys to... Um, Use your imaginations tonight. Let's use our sanctified imaginations. I want you to imagine that there's this ruler of the universe, and he's the king of all kings, and he's the lord of all lords. And he loved people so much that he decides to come in the flesh and live a life like one of his servants. Okay, are you imagining this with me? Okay, it shouldn't be very hard. So he comes in the form of man and he walks among us and he demonstrates his will and he becomes the model for all of the subjects to follow in his footsteps. And then the most unthinkable thing happens. Because his servants were incapable of producing goodness and holiness, the, the goodness and holiness required to spend eternity with him, the king makes this ultimate sacrifice and he decides to die for them. He decides to die in their place and he pays all of their debt in full. 
so that there's no outstanding balance. And he brings them into his family. He cleanses them. He restores them. He makes them holy and righteous. And as if that wasn't enough, he then equips his servants by putting his own spirit inside of them. He puts his own spirit in them because he decides, like, you know what? I want these guys to take charge of the planet. And he starts to give them these very clear assignments and mandates. And let's just pretend that one of these assignments, one of these clear-cut signs of being a follower of this king is the supernatural ability to juggle. Juggle, right? Anybody in here a juggler? Are you a supernatural juggler? Okay. Let's just pretend that the main sign or one of the main signs of following this king is knowing how to supernaturally juggle. And when he was here in the flesh, this king went around everywhere and juggled. And the people were awestruck by it. The people laid down their lives and repented at the sign of his juggling. And they would travel great distances to see this king juggle. And after he juggled for countless people, this good king teaches his followers to juggle. And he has this small team, these loyal followers, and he gives them this supernatural ability to juggle. And he, so what he does is he starts to talk about juggling. He teaches them how to juggle. He sends them out to juggle. Okay? And the disciples start to follow in his footsteps. And thousands of people convert. And thousands of people's lives are changed. And it's all because they followed the example of their king. So after... After the king equips the people with his spirit so that he would always be with them, he goes and he sits at the right hand of the Father, high and exalted forever and ever. He's enthroned, and he's, he's literally at the right hand of God. Well, one day, this king who's been enthroned, he decides to come and check on his people, and he wants to see how they're doing with their assignments. So he goes to check on their schooling and their training centers of his priesthood. These schools, these training centers, these places where his servants now have the responsibility to train people to look and think and act like the king. And he goes into these schools, and to his surprise, there are virtually no schools for his kings and his priests to spend any time learning how to do the very clear list of assignments that he gave them. And the king, he's looking around, and he finds that in many circles, his disciples don't juggle at all. And in fact, some have begun to think that juggling is dangerous. And some of them say it's unnecessary and it's just an add-on. And to the king's surprise, he hears people whispering, you don't need juggling to get into heaven. And he hears people say, I think that person juggles just for the attention. And he also finds that in these houses, these temples that his subjects have made for him, and in these priestly training seminaries, that they're purposefully avoiding the topic of juggling, and they refuse to teach that juggling still exists and that it's real. And others think that juggling, yeah, it exists, but only in Africa, or juggling was a thing of the past, and it's only for a select few. And the king is shocked to see that so many of his priestly schools and training centers don't even talk about juggling, even at the PhD level. And he learns that a huge percentage of his priests have never experienced juggling for themselves. They've never seen it. They've seen movies about it, but they usually steer clear of it. And, and these priests, the ones who are ambassadors on his behalf, who are there to represent or represent him to the world, have no authority in the very thing that he, was, that he gave them first authority in. And his, because his priests refuse to obey his commands, many of his people are unable to find help with their juggling needs within the church. Within the church, the very place that they are supposed to go to find help with their juggling needs. And he hears people asking, wait, juggling still exists? And I, I didn't know I was allowed to juggle and nobody ever taught me how to juggle and I've seen it in movies, but it, it seems really scary, so I don't mess with that stuff. And again, because his priesthood is naive and untrained in juggling, and because people get no help from within the church, scores of people find no help with their juggling needs. And scores of people turn away from the church, and scores of people start going to false jugglers and unauthorized jugglers who lead them astray. 
And these false jugglers are popping up everywhere, juggling on every street corner. And the followers of the king are confused. And so they start going outside of the church and visiting these false practitioners of juggling. And the end result is that they start being led astray and they become more slaves to the enemy than when they first began. And it breaks the king's heart to see so many schools and temples and training centers specifically built to get people to look like him, to think like him, to act like him, who purposefully decide not to equip their people to represent him. And he's amazed at these priests that they neglect becoming trained in the things that he said were so important to him over and over and over. He's amazed at these priests that they neglect the things that he explicitly commands them to do, that he explicitly gives them authority to do. And he's amazed at these priests that they actually warn their own church members to stay away from those who do juggle because it's risky. I've seen a lot of people hurt getting, getting hurt juggling, so maybe we should just stay away from it. And the king wonders how his followers have no understanding of the thing that he explicitly taught about over and over, a third of his time. He's, he's confused how they're so thoroughly naive about demonstrating juggling, about this thing that he commanded, that he said his followers would do. How do you think the king feels? How is it possible that his king and his priests have no experience in one of the main things that he said they would have experience in? How does it feel? How do you think the king feels when he hears the ambassadors to the planet saying, we don't do juggling, but at least we have church at the movie sermons? How do you think that makes him feel? Now, what command from the real king of kings do you think I've replaced with the word juggling? Casting out, deliverance. That's the story. I mean, there's obviously more to the story, but that's a true story about deliverance right there. I think later this fall, we're going to talk about the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, what that is. And I'm telling you right now, he's grieved when his, his kings and his priests, that's you, by the way, have no clue about this thing that he says, uh, first up, I give you authority to juggle. First thing as you go into all the world, as a sign to the world, is that you're going to do this thing. I want us to understand a little bit more about demons and Satan and how they operate and how to crush them under your heel. And in, in Kingdom Living, we talk to um, our students about this idea. It's, it's the difference between the words ability and authority. Ability and authority. It's important to remember that Satan has the ability to pick fights, but he does not have the authority to win fights. Does this make sense? Satan has the ability to kill and steal and destroy. He just, apparently ability is different from authority. It's different from authority. He has the ability to start those things, but he has no authority to finish those things unless he gets that authority from somebody. Who's that somebody? the church. The deceiver has the ability to steal, but he doesn't have the authority to commit that act, at least not without consequences, right? Think about a thief who breaks into a house and steals something illegally. He has the ability to do so, but when the police come, they have the authority. And if they catch him, he goes to jail because he doesn't have the authority to keep himself out. Or if you want to think it this way, I have the ability to sin, but I don't have the authority to do that sinful act, at least not without consequence. So apparently Satan has this ability to pick fights, whether he does it through the weather, through sickness, through death, but he does not have the authority to enforce them. Who has the authority? You do. How much of that authority do you have? All of it. What percentage is all? A hundred percent. Satan does not have authority to enforce victory. We do. I want to go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 
She says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But what? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The enemy wants to devour you. Does he have the ability? He has the ability to start that fight, but does he have the authority to devour you? How do you know that he doesn't have the authority to devour you? Exactly. Go put that verse back up there. There's a, there's a key in this verse that you know he doesn't have the authority to devour you. And it's, it's right there in the middle of that paragraph. It says, resist him. Stand firm. In other words, here's how you beat him because you have the power and the authority. You just resist him. You don't give him that power. You don't give him that authority. Let's go to Psalm 23, one of the most famous passages. Um, here's just a portion of it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Leave that up there for a few minutes. We can sit in the presence of the enemy without fearing harm, because we've submitted to God's authority. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Some people think that being a Christian means you have no enemies. No, it just means you have authority over your enemies. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Did you know that the enemy can't harm you at his table? He wants to, he wants to devour you, but he cannot because he has no power or authority to do so. Being seated at the Lord's table puts us in a place of untouchable safety. Untouchable. And what are we doing at that table? We're sitting, yeah? What, are, what, what do you think we're sitting down at that table to do? Eat. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies to eat. Listen, he's providing nourishment for us in the presence of our enemies. Submitting to God seats us in his safety and his provision in full view of the enemy. He prepares a table for my provision that is fully safe. And the enemy can only watch. He's roaring, but you don't have to pay attention to that. He thinks he's a lion, but he's not. It says he, he roars like a lion, not because he is a lion. Now, again, um, as we're talking about deliverance, we had uh, before church, this week was the first week of deliverance training. Um, if you didn't get a chance to sign up, we'll do another one sometime down the road. But I want to make sure that people, people, when it comes to deliverance, typically fall in one of two camps, and they're both wrong. The camp that thinks there's a demon hiding behind every rock and the people who think there are no demons, and it's all in your head. Um, I don't believe that demons are hiding behind every rock, and I do not believe that demons are the cause of everything. I said this last week, I don't think that everything is a demon. I think that a lot of times it's a character issue, not a demon issue. And what we'll do is we'll often try to pass blame on demons, and really, it's just our own character flaws. Like, we'll war against this imaginary demon when it's like, well, maybe you should just discipline yourself a little bit more. Guard your heart a little bit more. And we said that you can't cast out the flesh. You can't cast out your character. You can only cast out demons. And demons are behind some things, clearly, scripturally. And next week, we're going to talk a lot about that. But I don't ever want to give demons or... Satan more credit than what he's due. And this is where I want to go with that thought. I think that a lot of Christians actually open themselves up to deception and demonic influence because they overly fixate on the demonic. We're told that we become like what we behold. Okay? We become like what we behold. And I've listened to deliverance. Let me do my air quotes for those listening to the podcast. I've heard deliverance ministers talk for hours and hours and hours and never once mention the deliverer, Jesus Christ. 
Okay? Many are obsessed with ministry, but not the minister. And that's a problem. Jesus actually warns about this. And I'm going to read you this passage. It's out of Luke chapter 10. This is when he had sent out the 72, and they had just come back from their exploits. And depending on your translation, 70 or 72. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy. How much power of the enemy? All of the power of the enemy. And nothing will injure you. And we're like, hooray, good sermon, Jesus. But then he says, nevertheless, that means but, hold on. Don't get lost in what I just said. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And that every time, and at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, right, the smart ones, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So here we see these 72 returning from their ministry assignment. They have all, you can read the chapter leading up to verse 17. They have all these cool things happen. They're celebrating the blind seeing and the demons being cast out. But according to Jesus, what were the 72 supposed to be celebrating? Their, their names being recorded in, in heaven. Now, here's a side note. Keep that up there. This is the wild part. He's like, guys, don't celebrate that. Celebrate more so that your names are in heaven. And then it says, at that very time, where, where is it? At the very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said what he said here. So he actually celebrates those things there. Isn't that interesting? At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. That word greatly rejoiced or rejoice greatly comes from a combination of two Greek words. Uh, those two words, the first one means very much, and the second word means to jump or leap. At that time, he very much leapt and jumped in the Holy Spirit. This doesn't have to do with deliverance unless you're a Pharisee and you need deliverance from the religious spirit because the religious spirit wants you only to think about Jesus as sad and gloomy and no emotion. But in this verse, Jesus is so excited and happy that he's jumping and celebrating over and over and over again. And here's the kicker, in the Holy Spirit. That's just emotionalism, Jesus. Oh, it's in the Holy Spirit. Jesus' uncontrollable emotion was because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was in the Holy Spirit. And for 2,000 years, Pharisees have been trying to take the in the Holy Spirit passage out of the scriptures. There is no joy without the Holy Spirit. In fact, his joy is our strength. Anyway, that's also for free. I'm keeping tabs on all these freebies. Listen, this is actually so important about this passage where they come back and celebrate. This is an error that we see so much in deliverance ministry. It's exactly what his, he warned his disciples about. And he saw this as a potential stumbling block to people. And it's this. It's becoming prideful with the ministry of setting people free instead of glorifying the one who makes people free. So many in again, air quotes, podcast listeners, so many in deliverance ministry err because their identity is in their ministry instead of in a person. And Jesus is warning them in this passage, do not find your identity in the fact that you have authority and power over demons. He's saying you need to find your identity in the Father. You need to find your identity that you are written in the book of heaven, in the book of life, and that you're now a son and a daughter. Find your identity in the fact that you belong to him. And then, because you're finding your position under somebody, in other words, because you're submitting as your place of authority, that's where you get to operate from. When we discover that our operating, our place of operation is from a place of submission, we won't risk stumbling into pride. 
pride has no place to land when we recognize that we're not the source of his power. We're not the source of his authority. We're not the source of his dominion. We're not the source of people being delivered because he's the deliverer. And our identity is just that we're written in his book. And he's then therefore given us power. He's therefore given us authority. But if we celebrate what we do, as the 72 did, it actually will lead you to pride. But if we celebrate what he does, it leads to worshiping the one who delivers, which is exactly what Jesus did right after that. Humility. It's, it comes from true understanding of our position, our identity. I've heard, um, I had a friend who was telling me that when he was younger, he was in youth group, and uh, one of the teenagers who was in the youth group started to have like these manifestations, these demonic manifestations and snarl and speak in other voices. And he got really violent. And this one kid in the youth group said, you can't touch me. I know how to cast demons out. And he ran up to the guy to cast out this demon and the demon, the person picked him up and threw him across the room and he got injured. But then there was this other kid in the youth group who said, I know who casts out demons. And he walked up to the guy, put his hand on him and cast the demon out. Do you understand the difference between getting lost in your ministry versus finding the minister? Okay. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let that sink in. I've seen so many deliverance ministers stumble into pride, uh, which is exactly what Jesus is warning about there. And I need us to understand, if you are looking for demons, you will find them. But if you're looking for Jesus, demons will find you prove that. Read the Gospels. You won't find one time when Jesus is like, yo, Simon Peter, let's go rustle up some demons. It's not there. It's not in the Gospels. It's not in the book of Acts. It's nowhere in the Bible. There are no demon hunters in scripture. You will never find a verse that talks about, and they went out looking for demons to cast out. Now, is casting out demons bad? No, it's wonderful. It's a sign of believers. If you, I shouldn't say you, that's, that's not right. If people feel the need to go out looking for demons, they need to be careful and, and not be surprised when they realize that their heart is no longer saying, your face, Lord, I will seek. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Kristen, tip the hat to you for that one. Where are we supposed to transfix our gaze? Where? On where? Body part. On his face. Now, I'm all about his hand. People, always, people get arrogant and religiously prideful, and they say, I don't need his hand. I just need his face. Well, his hand is really close to his face. And when you get his face, it's hard not to get his hand as well. I celebrate his hand, but my eyes are supposed to be locked in on his face on the Lord, and it's supposed to be unwavering. And when we gaze fully on him, we set that gaze fully on the Lord, that allows him to set our paths. We're not looking at the path, he is, we're looking at him. And when we give him that full adoration and that full gaze, it's a sign of trust and submission that we know that he'll bring us to where he needs us to go. So if I'm looking at his face, he'll line up that path before me and he's going to bring the people into my life, demons or not, who he needs me to interact with. Let me be clear. There is no such thing as deliverance ministry. There's just ministry. Okay? There's no such thing as deliverance ministers. There's just Christians. Every single believer is called to heal, to set captives free, to break yokes of bondage. Listen, deliverance isn't a type of ministry. It's overflow. Deliverance isn't ministry. It's just the natural byproduct of looking like Jesus. So please don't tell me you're a deliverance minister. I don't believe you. I don't. I know you, th you believe you. But listen, deliverance is real. It's necessary. It's good. It's valuable. But people who consider themselves deliverance ministers almost always have a level of pride and rebellion within them. Almost always. Because calling yourself a deliverance minister sure does emphasize you a lot instead of the deliverer. It's almost like God would want us to call ourselves Christians because it magnifies Christ, Christians, right? Christians. 
Let me give you an example. I love physical healing and praise God by, by his mercy and by his grace, I have seen hundreds, if not thousands of people physically healed. It's my favorite thing. And I, I've been around people and they hear testimonies uh, like we shared last week um, about God doing things and touching people's bodies. And they'll say things like, oh, you have a beautiful healing ministry. And I say, no, I don't. I have a Christian ministry. I have a Jesus ministry because healing, deliverance, all, all the things that Jesus says you get to do, those aren't for deliverance ministers. Those are for Christians. Those aren't for healing ministers. They're for Christians. Is this floating? Is this landing? Okay. The problem that I see when we say, oh, I have a healing ministry or oh, I have a deliverance ministry is it implies a separate type of ministry from normal ministry. When all of those things biblically are just considered the normal Christian life. That's the standard. You won't find a single verse in your Bible that makes healing or deliverance anything but normal Christianity, standard Christianity. In other words, those are the baselines. That's actually the starting place of expectation for his followers. You know this, but I want us to be ultra aware that Jesus Christ is our model and our example. He is the one we glorify. He is our only agenda. Whatever he says, we say. He is the model that we want to become like. Again, we're called Christians, Christians, little Christ. That's what Christians mean. If you call yourself a Christian, no one's going to believe you unless you look like the Christ. So if Jesus was something, shouldn't all of his followers also be that something? Okay. If Jesus was something, how would we ever justify logically us not doing the thing that the example is doing for us, that the model is doing for us? And again, if we're telling people we're little Christ, not like we're comparing ourselves to Jesus, but we're little Christians. That's what it means. If we're telling people that we're little Christ, we're like little Christ, shouldn't our actions and our deeds and our words and our mindsets be exactly like his? Not like 80% like his, but exactly like his. If Jesus was something and we're not that something, it means that we are off. His belief system was perfect. His actions followed his belief system. It's never an issue of his beliefs. It's always an issue of our beliefs. It's always a matter of our actions. And here are some of the things that Jesus did while he was in the flesh, walking around, setting an example for Christians. He healed, he prophesied, cast out demons, he gave words of knowledge, he operated in supernatural gifts of discernment, and he says, you're, you don't know what spirit you're of. He says, go into this city and there's going to be a donkey waiting for you. He moved in miracles. He moved in words of wisdom. The only two gifts of the Holy Spirit listed in Scripture that we don't see Jesus operating in, at least in, in the words of the Bible, are we never see him operating in tongues or interpretation of tongues. We don't know if he did. We just know those are the only two that he didn't explicitly do in the Gospels. So the logic has to be this. If he did those things, we therefore also have to do those things if we want to look like him. We don't get to pick and choose. It's not a buffet. What does it actually mean to be Christ-like? I've been in environments where being Christ-like just means you're nice to people. And being Christ-like means that you smile and wave at the person who cuts you off in traffic. I was Christ-like today. I didn't do what I wanted to do. But what if, and here's just a wild thought, what a wild thought, what if being Christ-like actually meant doing all of the things that he did? Because that would make us like Christ. If we're following his example, those things becoming the normal parts of the experience is how it's defined. It's, it's by necessity. They're not add-ons. And I want to tell you, just like there aren't healing ministries and there aren't deliverance ministries, there aren't divisions of Christianity. There's no such thing as charismatic Christianity. There's no such thing as evangelical Christianity. There's no such thing as continuous Christianity. There's no such thing as cessationist Christianity. There's just Christianity. There's just being Christ-like. And if our version looks different from his version, we've probably created unauthorized dividing lines. Don't tell me, well, I'm a, 
I'm a this or I'm a that. Just be a Christian. And again, uh, you get it. You guys are smart. You guys are wise, not just smart. There are no deliverance ministries. There are no healing ministries. You, can't, you can try to church up the language all you want, and you can come up with clever names. But the minute that we put a word in front of the word Christianity, it suddenly becomes a partial representation of the authentic. Well, I'm a charismatic believer, and they're a non-charismatic believer. Then both of you guys are operating in a lens that isn't pure. Because Jesus never said, okay, I want the charismatics to go to this denomination. I want Catholics over here. I want Lutherans here, Methodists here. Listen, I'm not against denominations. We talk about that in school. But we have to be a complete representation of him. That was good. Thank you. We have to learn to be humble. People get two concepts really, really wrong. Christ-like and humble, or humility. We think Christ-like, like we said, is just like smiling even when our neighbor, you know, throws their dog poo in our yard. Like, ah, I'm Christ-like, I don't care, I'll turn the other cheek. It's like we're, no, I won't say it. But we also err with other terms like humble. And we think humble means that we just think really poorly of ourselves. And we think that humble means, um, I'll give you my, my shoes, I'll give you my jacket, I'll give you my paycheck, I'll give you all these things because it makes me more holy. That's actually pride. You're doing those things to be more holy than the other person. And when it comes to deliverance, when it comes to God, when it comes to demons, when it comes to Satan, you cannot fake spiritual things. And let me tell you, humility is a spiritual thing. I don't care what your actions are. I don't care how, how churched up you make it, how whitewashed your tomb is. He, you're not going to fool anything in the spirit realm, which is the more real realm. And when, when, it, comes to, when it comes to deliverance, when it comes to um, the things that Jesus gave us authority to do, to cast out demons, um, we need to be very careful about what we think about ourselves what we believe about our father, what we believe about the enemy, what we believe about these demons, because they will lie to you. They will try to cheat you. They will try to steal from you. They will try to destroy you. And the minute that we say, well, I'm a deliverance minister is the minute that you get to be thrown across the room by the demon. But the minute you say, well, I stand on the authority and the blood of Jesus, you will watch them flee. You will watch them run away. You will hear them scream and howl because they don't like that name, because all authority and all power is unto that name. Can you guys close your eyes? I want to pray for you, and I want to do um, something where you're not looking around. This isn't a religious exercise. I just don't want you looking around. I want people to have comfort and freedom. Uh, the Lord told me tonight that there's people who are actually struggling with both sides of the humble coin. Um, people who are wrestling with pride, but also people who... Um, pride who, who refuse to become humble, but also there's people who wrestle with, they just hate themselves. And that's not humility. And if you find yourself on either side of that coin, this is just for me, and it's just for you. I want you to raise your hand. Nobody's looking around. Keep it up just for a second. I want to be able to see you so I can mark it and pray for you guys. Okay, put your hands down. No one's looking around. This is, this is a private moment. If you, and we've talked about this last week, fear is a strategy. It's, it's, a, it's a spirit. And it's all the enemy has. It's all that demons have in their repertoire is fear. And we went after it. There was actually a lot of deliverance last week after church when we prayed. There's deliverance during church. I feel like there was deliverance tonight. People were set free and delivered from these things, from fear, from pride. But if you're still struggling with fear, no one's looking. Put your hand up. Thank you. Put your hands back down. I'm, and keep your eyes closed. But I want to remind you, if you were here, um, just very quickly, I told you that story about Rachel J. just casting out demons when it was manifesting. And in the flesh, that demon sure looked scary. But in the spirit, Rachel J. was terrifying to that demon. And I need you to understand, in the same way 
that Jesus had power and authority and the disciples had power and authority and Rachel J has power and authority. You also have power and authority. And I need you to understand that your flesh may fail, but don't go by your flesh. You don't cast out by the flesh. You cast out by the spirit of God. And I, I'm, I'm here to encourage you that his spirit rests upon you. He's in you. You are so terrifying to the enemy. And just know, if you ever do get scared, if, you, if the thought of encountering somebody who's manifesting with demons is intimidating to you, just remember how intimidated they are when you walk in the room. Be that light. Be that person who says, I don't have to intimidate them. Jesus intimidates them. And I look just like him. Hold out your hands. We're gonna, I just want to bless you. Father, thank you for this house. Thank you for this group that is hungry to look and think and act exactly like you. I ask that you would touch hearts right now, that pride would be shattered, that people who have wrestled with that for years, that you don't have to do anything. He does the heavy lifting. So just receive him breaking that yoke off of you and putting his yoke upon you. Those of you who have wrestled with, with the, the other unhealth side that we call humility, the, the hatred of self, the, the tearing yourself down. Be encouraged that you're not alone, that he says, I'm proud of you. I believe in you so much that I've chosen to give you my spirit. And when you have my spirit, when you walk by the spirit, you look exactly like me. Be encouraged. And I break off the, the yokes of fear that the enemy has tried to bring upon our, our church, our people, and the people around us. Yeah. Light of the world, I'm talking to you, church. Light of the world, rise up. Be the light on the hill. I'm going to tell you, when you're a light, it attracts bugs sometimes. But they will get zapped. I promise you. Yeah, so strength and courage be upon you. I want to read this. I'm just praying I'll end with this. It's out of Numbers 6. It's what Moses prayed over Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel. And then I will bless them. So in the name of Jesus, I invoke his name upon this church. I invoke his name upon you. That his light, that his, his face would make your face shine. That you will look exactly like him. Yeah, be blessed. Be encouraged. I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5 live at Kahalama. Aloha.